Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. You know, here at Media Path, we curate your entertainment options. So many people have thanked us for pointing them toward interesting books and television shows and movies so that they didn't have to slog through all the rest in the midst of their busy lives. All we can say is, you're welcome. welcome. We also have awesome guests. The hysterical Kathy Ladman will be with us today. One of the great stand-ups. She's also an actor, a television writer. Lots to talk about. Kathy will be with us in just a second. But first, Wheezy, what are your suggestions this week? Well, I have two, Fritz. So we're going to do me and then you and then back to me, okay? So I, so on HBO, there is something called Music Box. Music Box on HBO is a collection of six documentary films created by Bill Simmons exploring pivotal moments in music history. The series includes Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, Jagged, about the emergence of Alanis Morissette, DMX, Don't Try to Understand, Listening to Kenny G, Mr. Saturday Night, which is about Robert Stigwood, and Juice World, Into the Abyss. So for reasons still unclear to me, I began my journey through Music Box with Kenny G. Fritz. I saw them. Hold me. On the Natch, I do not give a lot of thought to Kenny G, but perhaps he provokes my attention because he is so equally well-loved and hated. The film gives you a wide window into his personality. Kenny G is warm and likable and musically gifted. He is also entirely disciplined, determined, ritualistic, and tactical. He would have made a good monk. Focused and diligent, Kenny feels little responsibility to adhere to the historically recognized tenets of jazz. He creates what he creates with no apology, but with a longing to be more universally appreciated. This guy loves to devote himself to practice and mastery, matching that work ethic with his gift for melody and his artistry inspired the smooth jazz musical genre that haunts your bank line. But the reality is a lot of people like it. Kenny G is now winning at social media through his willingness to crack fun at himself. He may not fully appreciate the jokes, but he gets that it is tactical. I don't ever need to hear Kenny G hold a note for an hour just because he has the discipline to master a parlor trick. But I do recognize that he is excellent at the art and the science of creating Kenny G. And I will watch more of the music box docs. I'm currently working on Robert Stigwood and report back to you from the front. Fritz. There you go. Yeah. First of all, he's a magnificent entrepreneur. Yep. He's one of the smartest businessmen in music. Mm -hmm. And people have no idea how popular this guy is in China. Mm -hmm. They play the same Kenny G song at sunset throughout the entire country over one giant Chinese sound system mm -hmm. every single night. It's like a religious experience to say goodnight to a Kenny G song. Right. It's, it lets people know that it's time to go home. And at one of he performed a concert where he did that song like three or four songs in and everybody got up and walked out. Yeah. That's how confused they are by it. They think it just means time power, to, time to leave. You don't see that with Green Day in any of the other Eastern Not yet. I'm working on that. All right. My pick is Cyrano. Okay. I'm sure it will end up streaming, but right now it's only in theaters. I saw it at the Lamely. It's based on the musical by Erica Schmidt that's based on the original French play Cyrano de Bergerac written in 1897. And I didn't know this, but Cyrano de Bergerac was an actual person, and, and the play loosely reflects the reality of his life. Cyrano was a master wordsmith and a poet and a romantic and a very brave soldier. He feels like his appearance, however, makes him unworthy of the love of Roxanne, who happens to be his distant cousin back when you could do that. 
and he's been devoted to her for years. In the original story, Cyrano has an exceptionally large nose, which made him extremely self-conscious. Plus, Roxanne is in love with another man. Now, the self-conscious Cyrano helps the other man, who is also a soldier, secure Roxanne's love. And he does that by using his incredible writing skills to secretly fashion the other man's love letters for him. And what makes the story really powerful in this version is that Cyrano is played by Peter Dinklage, Game of Thrones fame, who just happens to be a little person. So it's really easy to empathize with his insecurities about his looks played against all the other normal size actors in this film. Also, an added element is Roxanne is white and the soldiers he's fallen in love with was black. So this inclusive combination is really just a comment on the purity and the blindness of true love. Quite beautiful, and the acting is great. Haley Bennett plays Roxanne. You'll recognize her from The Equalizer and the latest version of Magnificent Seven with Denzel Washington, and also a great movie that I loved, Girl on the Train. The other soldier she's in love with is played by Kelvin Harris Jr., who was seen in Trial of Chicago 7, one of my favorite movies of last year, and 12 Years a Slave. The acting, wonderful, great telling of this classic tale. It is a musical, but happily not too many songs, and the songs were well-placed and easy to understand. I loved Cyrano. Wow. Okay. I'm going to check that out. Still in theaters, right, Fritz? Yeah. Okay. So I am watching. Have you seen this, Fritz? This is right up your alley. It's called 1971, The Year That Music Changed Everything. It's on Apple+. Plus. No. Okay. This eight-part documentary series is executive produced by Asif Kapadia and James Gay Reese. They comprise the team who won an Oscar for Amy, their 2015 film about Amy Winehouse. The 1971 series is based on the 2016 book, 1971, Never a Dull Moment, Rock's Golden Year, by British music journalist David Hepworth, which dials in on representative moments of 1971, a particularly tumultuous and watershed year when the Vietnam War raged on amidst outrage, protest, and a musical heartbeat, which both echoed and fomented change. In that one year, John Lennon inspired us to imagine— Marvin Gaye achingly asked, what's going on? And Neil Young cried out, four dead in Ohio. The series tells its stories through beautifully edited tapestries of rare archival footage and the voices of those who were there as it endeavors to understand why rock and roll and R&B so ably captured and catapulted cultural tipping points in black power, women's liberation, and gay pride. The Vietnam War was the driving wedge issue which sent young people into the streets burning draft cards and cleaving them from the sensibilities of their moral majority parents. Cries for peace only served to inspire demands for rights and representation on all moral fronts. Did the drug use and decadence muddy the message? Sure. But without the drugs, would we have had the fashion? It's a good question. The takeaway here is that music does not just reflect, it shapes. The blend between music and its time is exponential. Boomers know this as well as anyone, and as we watch 1971, our intention should be not just to celebrate our contributions to positive change, but to give a leg up to those coming behind us and wishing to do the same. Sounds really yeah, good. Yeah, eight, eight parts, but Sounds well... Sounds like it'd be part of the Music Box series. Well, this is all this really great documentary stuff that's going on on streaming media that you might be kind of flipping past. And if you have any interest in all of this stuff, it, just dive in. It's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
Well, I'm going to bring out our guest. I just love this lady. I've been a fan for a long time, a wonderful comic. She had her own HBO special. She made nine appearances on The Tonight Show, six appearances on The Late Late Show. She was a writer on King of Queens. She's an actor with roles in White Oleander, What Planet Are You From, and Charlie Wilson's War, both Mike Nichols movies. On television, she was seen on Roseanne and Dr. Katz, and Everybody Loves Raymond and Pretty Little Liars and Curb Your Enthusiasm. And in 19 she won the American Comedy Award for Best Female Comic. She has the best description of her own humor. She describes her comedy as, quote, a self-proving, anxiety-venting vehicle for exposing <laughs> personal neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Ladman, so nice to see you, my dear. Thanks for Nice to see out. you, too. Does it say that I describe it like that? Yeah. That I- because I think that somebody else described it. I think oh, okay. I have to. I thought it was you, no, but, but I, it was. Well, I thought I it was. I thought it was very. I thought it was beautifully written about who and what you are and what makes you so funny. Oh, that's that's good to know. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thanks. First of all, two things. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind that I have wind chimes outside. I hope that's not going to be too distracting <laughs> no for you. No, love and, it. And and what's the. Um, Lang- is there a language no, uh, no, you say restriction? You I feel. say whatever the fuck mm-hmm. I want. Yeah, we're right, we're, we're not going to okay. kick you off the cruise. Say All right. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. All right I, let, let's just do what we have to do and, and talk about your start in stand-up. You, you okay. came up with a great class of stand-up. Oh, my God, yes. Talk, talk about your start. Uh, those were the sweetest days, I'm telling you. Um, I started in New York in 1981. And... Uh, you know, in, in small in a smaller club, a place called Good Times, where I met people that I still know today. And then about six months later, I my first um, showcase club that I passed that was Catch a Rising Star. Can I just pause for you, a second and ask Thomas yes. if maybe we shouldn't quiet those wind chimes? Oh, I'll shut the window. It does sound like you're getting a text. I'll shut the windows. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I have a funny story about wind chimes. I moved to this house and I was like, oh, wind chimes. And I'm like, I'm just going to really kind of flow with that. And after a week, they were stuffed into a terracotta pot. Like, I, like no. Who All right, are some so of the people that what do you, you want to? Who were the, those in your class at the time? Mark Schiff was a little before. Riser was Riser, before. Seinfeld, Seinfeld was before. They were probably about six, six years before I was. I'm trying to think who was in my class. You know, we overlapped a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry Amaros was in my class, literally in my class. We took a stand-up class together, and um, and that's that's where I met him. Um, God, I'm blanking on who was in actually in my class. Do you have any names to throw out? No, that you, help you, me? you answered my question because okay. I, I just think that you and um, all of the people, Sue Kalinsky and Sue Kalinsky, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, some of the other ladies that came out of that 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 sort of that New York school, right? Were, I would say the male version of that would be the Seinfeldian, Robert Kleinian, uh, Paul right. Riserian class. Riserian, which wow. I just mm. love. Riserian, I, I, I love it. Yeah, there it is. That sounds like a really painful procedure. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, not uh, covered but, by but insurance. That's why, by I, that, that's why I always thought that the New York people were so good because first of all, the audiences were tougher back there and everybody, you you all learn from the best in one another. Yes, and also very importantly, you got so much stage time in New York. Mm -hmm. You know, you could go from club to club to club to club. And um, I mean, on a weekend, it was very easy to do five sets a night. Wow. 
Um, so, so, I mean, I would work You're too far to drive to do that out here. <clears throat> exactly. So you would just do, do it. You would do subways or cabs in New York mm-hmm. and you would, and you would make it, you would make it around town. And, um, yeah, here, you know, you had like maybe two or three places where you could get on stage really. And it was just, it, you could not get the stage on. That's why I, I was so glad that I had four years of solid New York uh, experience before I came out here. And then when I came out here, um, here, here being in Los Angeles, I, um, I passed at the comedy store and I worked there six nights a week. Wow. So I had, at least I had a home club that gave me stage time. What motivated you to take the class? I was scared. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really scared to be a stand-up comic. I wanted to, I decided to be a stand-up comic when I was 13, but I was terrified. And I had one false start and I actually moved out to Los Angeles, didn't go near a comedy club. And um, I just, you know, I just thought maybe this will give me a little bit more support. So I can't even remember how I found the class, but it was the, the guy who taught it. His name was Dick Lord. He was a, he was a, um, a Catskills guy. And it was a great class. I mean, basically, your homework was to write material, get up on stage in class, perform the material. And when he felt that you had five minutes that were worthy, he said, go to this club Good Times, which was a secondary or even tertiary club in the city. And... Um, you know, an easy place to to fail. So it gave you the courage and the structure. Yes. And I, I, I really needed that. I really didn't. And I, you know, I did not have the support of my family. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, I was so different from everybody in my family. Oh, really? And, they weren't well, funny? No, no. I think that, no, my dad was really funny. And my sister, Leslie, is really funny. Although she's... She's more of a character. She's she's different. I mean, our senses of humor are are very compatible, but we're we're we have distinct we have distinct styles. But um, she's not a performer. But um, nobody in my family was a performer. Even in my extended family, you know, everybody was you know had conventional uh, jobs and and you know, I, I think stand-ups can yes. be put in the, in the two family backgrounds you either came from a black hole of emotional despair (laughs) or you came from my background which was very normal i had a comfortable upbringing but i became a comic because i had an insatiable need for attention it had nothing to do with darkness or psychological disorders i come from the former you know there was just a lot of fighting my parents had a shitty marriage Mm. um they fought all the time and it was not uh i mean (sighs) You know, my family was very dynamic, so we had we had a lot of personality, but there was a lot of strife. And for me, as the youngest and the one who was sort of not willing to go down the path of least resistance, it was tough. And then I developed an eating disorder, which was really difficult, which is what my show is about. And, um, uh, you know, I, I had to kind of. I had to overcome a lot to grow up and out of that house. Wow. Yeah. To even that believe funny, that, huh? that, yeah, to believe <laughs> that you deserved it, that you deserved to have peace in your life. Oh my God. I mean, I, 
I never thought I was worthy of of anything, really. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I was always told to be better. Mm. I was always told I could do better and do do more. And I mean, I have a literally a conversation with my mom. One, I was living out here already, and we were on the phone, and and I was. Um, she asked me how I was, and I said I'm a little depressed, and. She said, are you taking care of yourself? I said, yes, I'm taking care of myself. Are you doing everything you can to feel better? Yes, I'm doing everything I can to feel better. Are you doing your best? And I said, yes, I'm doing my best. She said, just do your very best and then do some more. <laughs> and that summarizes I mean, your entire childhood. <laughs> basically, that really encapsulates it right there. Just do your very best and then do some more. So, Me- so was your humor a survival mechanism in the midst of all the turmoil or... I think so. Yeah. I definitely think so. And where yes. did the humor come from? From one of your families, one of your parents being funnier than the other? Or? My dad was definitely the fun, the funnier one. And he was also the scarier one. He was very scary. He was a rage, a rager. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So is your comedy as much therapy for you as it is entertainment for us? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's great to tell. It's great for me to tell these stories and be validated Mm -hmm. and 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 to make something good out of something that was painful. Yeah. And and I really see that in your in your work. I I see that it's also therapeutic for others who are going through something similar. But to hear that explosion of laughter over something that you've been through that where the laughter almost says, not only do we get it, but it's crazy and hilarious that you went through it and survived. Exactly. It, 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 it validates me as a survivor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you, uh, you, and you mentioned one of, those, uh, one of those issues that you like to express to an audience and be validated for, which is an eating disorder, which is what your one-person show is about, which you are looking for a home theater for now in Los Angeles. Tell us I about actually the show. just found one. Oh, good for you. Um, yes, I just booked a theater. Um, well, the show is called, um, Does This Show Make Me Look Fat? Yeah. And it took a long time for me to get it to this point. It was just, it, I think it was, no pun intended, very close to the bone. And um, it was, I just didn't have enough distance from it. And and I also, another, another issue for me was that I'm so used to being a stand-up comic and that everything needs to be funny. I didn't really fully accept and understand that not everything in this show needs to be funny. That's right. Because it's just not appropriate anyway. I mean, in in order for me to get my message across, some of it is funny and some of it just isn't. And Fritz has been through the same thing because he does his his shows and he knows that there's certain moments where you just have to say something and let people soak it in. Yeah. Right. And then it makes the jokes crack better if they if they because in a stand up set, not not with you, but some guys who are set up punchline, set up punchline, people get into the rhythm of the joke and they they start laughing before the punchline gets out there. And and that's a good rhythm, but it's not entertaining all the time. Right. So you can take a moment and take a deep breath and say something profound or, or, or soulful and then pop a joke in there and the joke works better. Right. I I think it's like one time I read this quote about um, music. I I used to have this. I saved the piece of paper and in in moving various times, I guess it got lost. But it was about music and why it's beautiful. And 
why there needs to be sound and silence. And they used the, the uh, example of John Belushi, how he lived his life all up here. It was all that intensity. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, when, it beco- when it's all intense and all sound, it becomes a cacophony. And when you have the sound and the silence, there's, it's, it's a balance. It undulates. So it, it, it creates something yeah, beautiful. That's exactly correct, in my opinion. There's rhythms and then and then there's there's twists and turns and there's a chance for people to catch their breath. You know, right. and that's one of the things like if you've ever sat through a comedy show where everyone is just so funny and then the headliner is supposed to be the funniest and you're just tired. Like, right. <laughs> just let me take a breath. Right. And right. also you're saying something and in a one man show. I think that the challenge is for the performer to make people laugh and cry. So. Right. Not only is it okay, it's it's you need to let them cry. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So my show is going to be um, performed from June. It's just a it's just a, a like a sneak peek of the show. It's the first it's this first foray, and it's going to be June third to the fifth at the Pico Playhouse in L. A. on in West L. A. Wonderful. Congratulations. Give us Thank just you. the general. I'm very excited. Give us the general arc and what what, what people were here. Um, well, you'll hear and see how the uh, concept of perfectionism and um, not being enough really um, sort of dictated my my childhood and how, how the adult that I be, that I became from that is um, is t- tortured because of that because. I don't think that uh, I don't think that I learned how to be human. And you're going to see how in the show, how I didn't accept my frailties. I didn't expect accept my humanity, my uh, ability to make mistakes. I mean, which is su- such an important thing. So I think you'll you'll see that and you'll see how I found a way to heal myself through um, therapy and through my work. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's going to take something away from this. It's oh, yeah. quite beautiful. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you something. Even people who aren't anorexic, which is my issue, um, are going to relate to this because of the theme of perfectionism. I think everybody can, everybody has a relationship to that, either being a perfectionist or not, or being the other end of the spectrum. And it's a societal thing. Americans are expected to be that way because we see how imperfect we are in every television commercial that pops yes. up. Yes. Yeah. And yes. what we don't what we don't really grasp, you know, especially as kids, is that learning comes in the mistakes. There is Oh no- my God. I had an acting teacher who used to say, We wait for the mistakes. Okay. That's what we want. <laughs> that's where you get the good stuff. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and and that's not and that's not what I was going for as a kid. You know, I was I was like a little accountant. I mean, I I I was good at math and science. I was not an English student, although I became an English teacher, but I was not uh, good at anything that was subjective. I was very good with things that had objective, finite answers because I had no faith in my own perspective. But the other thing about my show, which I believe will be more, more universal than merely just attract people who are anorexic, is that everybody has a, a relationship to food. Mm-hmm. You know, 
it, it's some some are more extreme than others, but everybody has a thing with food. And I think that that will resonate. Did you see Spencer? Yes, I did. Pretty good look at what you're talking about in that film. As yes. Well. Man, she was bulimic, right. which is different, but still she mm-hmm. was compulsive and and scared. Mm-hmm. And had to and had to be um in control. That's another that's another theme that's covered in in my show, being in control. Right. Which and, is an illusion. And food is an addiction that we can't quit whereas, you know, sometimes I think People feel like if they if you tell yourself you you can't do this anymore, that's maybe more understandable than than being told you you have to continue doing this, but you're going to have to moderate. And learning right. how to moderate is it's like giving me too much responsibility. You know, that's kind of I think where it stems from. Is is there any truth in that? Yes, um, you know I. My mind wandered a little bit at the end because of what you said, because I was thinking when you said moderate, mm-hmm. I was thinking I would just watched um, Desi and Lucy and Desi, yeah. the Amy Poehler film, which I thought was terrific. I didn't see that. Yeah, no, I'm going to wa- I'm going to v- review it's it. It's really week. good. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really good. Um, and uh, Desi at the end talks about not being able to do anything in moderation, that he was able to do everything else well, except be moderate okay and that's really one of one of the things that plagued him it's tricky and i think it's one of the things that draws people to the strict version of any religion because the guidelines are right there for you and you don't have you know you don't have to i mean every day think about it every day of our lives we spend the entire day making choices it's Mm -hmm. all one choice after another and that's just too much for some people it's difficult to learn and and then there's that that fear of getting it wrong, which if you kind of embrace the mistakes is less scary. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, oh man, it was, it was so, it was, it was so verboten in my, in my home life growing up Mm -hmm. to make a mistake. Oh, wow. So verboten. My (sighs) God. Yeah. That's so how did your family and the people that caused the stricture that made you react to your life that way? How did they react to you um, becoming a successful stand up, which is having power over other people in an audience? It's exactly the opposite of what they tried to train you to do. Wow. Um, I think they I mean, I think they ultimately were very happy for me. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. What I found was that I found that my father could laugh at himself um, more than my mother could. One, I mean, one of the what I did, I did this joke on the on the um, on the first Tonight Show, and I actually use it in my show about my dad. About you'll remember this for it's about um, that he was a CPA and like every CPA who's most fastidious, meticulous, anal retentive person. And I talk about how to torture him that you would time up, time up against a, a wall and you in front of him, you'd refold a roadmap incorrectly. <laughs> and, and um, so I, after I did my first tonight show, I was interestingly on my way to do a cruise. And uh, this was back in, in the, it was like 89. And um they, back then, they could meet. They met me at my gate at JFK. Ooh. Can you imagine that? Yeah. People could meet me, go get into the airport, and go to the gate. Mm-hmm. 
And he, my dad brought uh, a New York subway mat uh, that he had folded in <laughs> incorrectly and put into an envelope. Well, he was so proud he had to have been the subject of that. You, that he was the star of the joke. That's so oh, cool. Oh, he loved that. Oh my and, God. One, and another time, my, oh God, we were in my neighborhood that where I grew up. We were in the car with my mom and we stopped. It was one of my mother's quote unquote friends was uh, on the sidewalk and we stopped and, and talked to her. And this friend said, I, I, is that stuff that you is that stuff that you talk about in, in about your family? Is that true? Which was what a stupid thing to say. And my mother was like, no, that's just an act. But it's it, you know, it wasn't an act. But my mother did not like to, quote unquote, hang out her dirty laundry. She really thought that uh, that you had to present one face to the public and then oh, yeah. another face to your family. And, and I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about two things you brought up. First, your first Tonight Show and then the yes. hell that is doing cruise ships occasionally. But talk okay. about your first, because that, that, that's your rite of passage, the first Tonight Show. Describe yes. your first experience. Well, um, apparently, I mean, I had, I guess I had been in front of um, the booker then, was uh, Jim McCauley. Mm-hmm. I had been in front of him many times and, and actually unaware of it. And, but finally I was, I was uh, given the pass and I was going to do my first tonight show. And, um, and I was bumped, which was very hard. Mm-hmm. I was bumped by Harry Anderson. That bastard. Yeah. I know I was he bumped was doing three times before I got on the first time. Three one by, times? One first time by, I'm sorry. I was bumped twice and made it on the third time. Okay. First time by Charles Grodin, who wouldn't shut up. The second right. time, Heather Locklear, who had just gotten some enhancing surgery, and Johnny uh, was just ogling this woman and went two minutes too long. Very distracting. And the right. comic always got was in the middle slot at 10 after 12. He got right. bumped and stuff went long. So I, right. I, I'm i not interrupting you, but I, I've, I, okay. I feel your pain. No, no, it was tough, and it was like it was like almost like having you know an an, an or not having an orgasm. It was like <laughs> I'm gonna get to do this tonight, <sighs> and 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 um and you know, and then I thought, okay, you know, Jim McCauley came to my dressing room. And he said, "Well, you're bumped because Harry Anderson does magic, and Johnny loved magic." And then he dropped his pants, and then they went <laughs> to an extra second. Yeah. And so I, you know, he said, "I was bumped," and I said, "Okay," and then. You know, like, you know, 15 minutes later. <laughs> so that was that was my release for that for that night. But the second time that I went there, which was my actual first time on, I went on with Jay mm. when he was guest hosting. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me to come back right away. I came back a month, a month or six weeks or something later. And that was also with Jay. And and when I'm, this is great. I was waiting um, backstage, you know, behind the curtain and Macaulay standing with me and they're playing the music during the commercial break. And Macaulay saying to me, you know, we really would like you to do the show with Johnny. And I said, well, you know, I'd like to do it with Johnny, but I don't I want to be able to do panel because I'm doing panel with Jay and I don't want to just, you know, all of a sudden not do panel. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that that would that would feel weird. So and and so he kept talking about it. And I said, can we talk about this another time? Please? Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> because I was just about to go yeah. on. So. Um, so and then it did work out. But the third time I was on with Johnny. And you did panel. Yes. Do you remember what you talked about on the panel? 
I can't remember. It's all a flash. It's all a flash. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look at them, which I, which are, I, they're on videotape. I really have to have these transferred. Oh yeah. Yeah. My it's first ridiculous. couple were, were peaks of mediocrity. The problem was some of it was timing because the headliner on my second shot was Barry Manilow. And that was in the days when we were back at 3000 West Alameda where people, you know, these house frows would camp out two days ahead oh. of time to see Barry oh, Manilow. So the whole audience was Barry right. Manilow fans and didn't care about one other aspect on the show other than Barry Manilow. And they're talking through my set. Oh, yeah. on the oh my God. It was really That's interesting. terrible. Yeah. Well, it was before the internet. They didn't really see each other oh until they met up God. at Barry gigs. And they I called them the button girls because I'd go see Barry on New Year's Eve. It was really fun at Universal to go see Barry on New Year's Eve. But they were the button girls and they'd all wear buttons. That's how oh, they recognize wow. each other. Yeah. Louise, are you from here? No, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but uh, I wanted I want to talk really quick before we move away completely entirely from the subject of you writing jokes about the people in your world and your yes. life and your family, because you now have a teenage daughter, correct? Yes. So at what point are you? You can't very yeah. very careful about that. Okay. I mean, I do a few jokes about her, but I'm very careful about it. It's very different when you're young, and it it, it would be unfair. It would just be unfair to her, I think. Now, how does she feel about if you still do a joke about when she was three? Is she okay with that? Not she, you know, she's like, yeah, you do all the jokes. I mean, she, I think she, I think she might, I think she might feign annoyance. At least that's how, <laughs> that's how I see it. Um, because they're very good jokes. They really are very good I know, jokes. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. But your husband is fine with it and everyone else in your family. He's really fine with it. Yeah. Somebody actually told me last week or a couple of weeks ago, he said, well, you're really hard on your husband. And I was thinking about what I said and like everything I said was true. It's just true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The you know, part- I, talk, I talk about I do the, this bit about how much I love my dog, whom I adore mm-hmm. and how I just watch him. So I'm going to abbreviate it, um, which will screw up the timing, but it'll, you'll get the gist of it. And how I want, you know, I could just sit and watch him sleep and just how much I love him. And I just can't <laughs> believe how much I love him. And I, I feel like, like I could never love another creature as much as I love him. And then, and then I walk down the hallway and I look into the bedroom and I see my husband taking a nap and I'm filled with resentment. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sad but true. <laughs> Dogs do nothing but nap, and yet I we adore them. So is my husband. <laughs> so talk about your cruise experience. Oh yeah, the great cruise scandal of twenty twenty. Because now you can you can correct me about this. It used to be, and this is where I got into trouble when I auditioned for cruises. You couldn't even do a double entendre. You couldn't do anything that suggested. That maybe humans have sex occasionally. Even married humans have sex. You had well, to be so clean. But now they don't do that anymore, right? Now don't you, you can loosen up a little bit. Or what happens is you 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 do an adult show like after ten o'clock at night on a cruise. Right. Show. Okay. Here's okay. Here's the deal. I used to do cruises in the eight in the eighties. Not a lot, but I did some, and I had a great time. I didn't audition for cruises. I guess they just my agents just booked me as a comic on a cruise. I didn't have to audition for the cruise company or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, then closer to now, um, I've had a, I, I have not done well on cruises. My act just does not translate well on cruises. It's I'm too, too dry. We're trying to escape. It's or is it that people, the people are I'm from the middle of the country and the people from the coasts maybe are more, 
attuned to your references, perhaps? Maybe so. Yeah. It may be so. But also what happened to me recently, so I go on this cruise. I'll just tell you the, mo- the most recent one. I go on this cruise. It's, it literally happened two weeks ago. And um, uh, I did a couple of shows the first night, which is terrible to do shows the first night. And um, very tepid response from the audience. But I've really... Um, lowered my expectations because cruise audiences it's not like it's not like what you're going to get in a club or a theater on land it's just not the same Mm -hmm. so but then the rest of the time i was on the cruise people kept coming up to me and saying how much they loved my show i was like really you know well great i was very surprising because they didn't they, they i wish they had been more vocal but um but it was nice to hear um then Last week, I get an email from my agent saying that they had gotten complaints about me. And these are the two these are the two jokes that were cited. Okay. The one is is the one about um, my husband and Hitler. Okay. The similarities <laughs> between his relationship with Ava Braun and my relationship with my husband. Okay. And the other one is about my daughter's Chinese adoption. Oh, that you and they found out. them both. They found them both offensive. Now, what the, hell? the Hitler one, I can understand. I, I actually can't even understand because because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm against Hitler. I'm against Hitler. Let me let me let me go on. Let me go public and say that I am against Hitler. And and how can you find that offensive? It, it just doesn't doesn't make sense. But then the jokes that I do about my daughter's Chinese adoption, I don't even see what I don't even see what they're talking about. Well, I, don't get I, it. I think that what you know, we are kind of living through a time where everyone's being really cautious because the cruise doesn't want to get canceled. I'd rather cancel Kathy Ladman than have, you know, a thousand people tweeting and then canceling, you know, this cruise line. Right. So, well, that's, I, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. They canceled me. And to tell you the truth, I'm relieved. OK. Because as much as I enjoy working, this was not enjoyable for me. This was so anxiety provoking. Yeah. I worked so hard to put together. You have to put together a lot of time. I had to put together two 45 minute sets, which is a lot of time for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was working really hard. I mean, I really I'm proud of myself. I really, you know, put my mind to the task and I did it. But it was not fun. And and I don't like working for people who don't want to hear me. No, but here's well, what I, I here's terrible. what I think is going to happen for comedians. I think that if the cruise line thinks that anybody can walk up to the office and say, I was offended by this joke because my yeah. sister has adopted a, a child from China. If they think that they can respond to that, just like if Florida thinks that, you know, every parent is going to get to dictate the curriculum, they will soon yes. realize they can't book any comedians. Because That's what's happening. Yeah. That's what's happening. They are burning through comics. Right. There's just, It's just not possible. And, that and you can... to tell you the truth, the comics that are performing well on cruise ships are Doing Boring. things that are either safe or really um, puns. I mean, certainly not thoughtful. You're They're right. not particularly thoughtful. Um, it's not thoughtful material. It's it's kind of easy and accessible. And well, I, and I, I'm not interested in that. Right. I just no, don't want to do that. No. Right. You're right. too smart for that. Well, well I, I knew we were too politically correct when Seinfeld said he would no longer do college campuses because people are too right. sensitive. I thought, wow, then we're in a bad place because he's right. maybe the least expensive 
functioning comedian working, you know? Yep. I mean, I think that um, certainly you hope that college campuses are going yeah, to be, Yeah, they should be know, free thought there. Nope. Yes. No. Nope. Well, that's just the irony, right? So I and, want, so, and Jerry's not, I mean, uh, as far as- well, not, I mean, not, I don't at think Jer- not at all. Not at all. So while we're talking about things that are not offensive, you were yes. in The Aristocrats. Yes. So I would love to hear about that experience because the, the movie is pretty iconic and I bet they recorded your bit without you having any frame of reference about how it was going to fall into the whole landscape right. of the thing. Very so true. Yes. What did, how did you prepare and then what did you think of the movie once it once it was finished? Um, well, we went over to Carrie Snow's apartment. Ooh, fun. And it was Sue Kalinske, Carrie Snow and I telling the joke together. Right. And oh my God, we had so much fun. <laughs> we smoked some pot. May I say that? No. And I think so. Yeah. <laughs> what? I can't. I mean, no, it's it's, no, it's legal can. now. You can. Yeah. you can do whatever you want. Sure. Oh well, I guess it wasn't legal back then, was yeah. it? Doesn't matter to us. All right, I don't care. Yeah. Whatever. And um, and we were having so we were having so much fun. Oh my God, we were having so much fun. And Provenza was there. And Pendulette was there um, and we were all laughing so hard. And and it, it was just a riot. It was just a riot. But little did we little did anybody know that this was going to be a vehicle for Bob Saget, <laughs> rest his soul, yeah. um, to really find his true audience. That's right. It was, you wasn't know? it? I think they because, kept, yeah, they kept cutting back to him because it just got more and more, you yes. know, wretchedly disturbing. Yes, and and the thing is that, you know, we all knew Saget. Sure. But any but America knew Saget only oh, from you know that was the house. irony of Bob Saget. Okay. That was what yes. that's what gave him snap, because people, you know, and, and you know now he's got a magazine out in grocery stores called America's Dad, looking back over his life. People had no idea, and then the irony of this really dark, dirty sense of humor made him yes. so funny. It scared yeah. the crap out of 50% of the audience. I think for me, because by the time that movie came out, I was well aware of Bob's act on stage, but I guess the rest of the country wasn't yet, and that's what introduced them. No, to, okay. yeah. I mean, so that really gave him, it was, it was incredible publicity. It was right on target for him. So what, the, what was the reaction, though? Were people disturbed or were people excited or did it immediately find a cult audience? I, I was in love with the movie. I, I thought it was the most fascinating concept or, or thesis to present a film that's everyone telling the same joke where the beginning is the same and the end is the same and the middle is whatever you want to make. It it's was a, it's just, a- yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's sorry, Louise, I didn't mean to interrupt No, you. it's just like, um, for me, I've, I'd, I hadn't seen a film really break every mold in terms of what can a documentary be, and right. I was completely delighted by it. And it was, it was a great um, look at storytelling and, yeah. you know, how, how, you know, verbal storytelling is, is, so, is such an essential art. Especially George Carlin. You really, you, you, you began to understand how important words are to him and telling yes. the story. I loved his part of it. So how did uh-huh. the three of you come about deciding how you were going to tell the middle of the joke? We didn't really plan it. Okay. I mean, we really free wheeled it. We really free wheeled it, and it was, you know, Louise. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, and and we did not overthink this. <laughs> and we did not best. overthink this. That's the we best. We really, we really just were in the moment and having a great time together. We, we the three of us were really great friends and very comfortable together, 
and uh, and very and very good friends with Provenza. So yeah, it, it was it was just a blast. It was a great fit. Yeah. Well, what a great a piece blast. of history to to have taken part in. Really fun. Oh, I know. I know. I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky. So you got to work with one of my heroes and you got to work with him twice, Mike Nichols. Did you read his the biography of Mike Nichols? I'm in, I'm in the midst of Holy it. Holy cow. He, he was a brilliant man. He was a, truthfully a genius, I think. Uh -huh. So what were your impressions? You did Charlie Wilson's well, War? I mean, I have, a, I have a great story to tell you about Mike Nichols. Um, the album is over there. I'm just looking at it in my hallway. It's Nichols and May Examine mm -hmm. Doctors. When mm. I was eight years old, I used to listen to this. Yeah. Uh, my parents had the album and I used to sit and listen to it and I loved it and I got it. I was eight and mm -hmm. I got it. Yeah. I really got it. And I memorized the album. Oh. And when I, and I still know it today. I mean, I, if you put it on, I could still, I could still mouth it along I'm, I'm sure every night my mom would come up to my room and and i would say my prayers and i would do a selection off the album <laughs> and she kind of looked at me like okay um <laughs> what do we not, got here <laughs> not really knowing what to make of this but so years later um i got ready to do my first tonight show and i and i was going to put on some music and while I was putting on my makeup and uh, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'm going to put on Nichols and May examine doctors. So that, you know, because that was like, you know, that was oh, like inspirational time. In crystallization. Yeah. Yes. So then um, I got a chance to audition for Mike Nichols for what planet are you from? And I and I ended up getting the part wow. and I'm on the set that day. And one of the cuts of the, the first cut of the album is called Gauze. And if, if you don't know the album, it's about this surgeon and his attending nurse and um, in the, in the operating room and he's asking her for things. And, and there's a, like a, a sexual romantic tension between them. Right. So, um, so I'm staying, I happen to be standing right next to Mike on, on outdoors on this patio on the set. And he had hurt his foot. So he was wearing a boot on one foot. So he wasn't incredibly mobile. So I just happened to be standing shoulder to shoulder with him, setting up a shot. And out of nowhere, I just, my mouth just said gauze. <laughs> and oh. he said gauze and I said more gauze and he said more gauze and I said more gauze and he said more gauze and I said do you have any more gauze that's all the gauze I don't know I had a whole roll of gauze what happened and we're going back and and then and then I got mixed up because I was actually Mike Nichols and oh. he was doing Elaine May's part and I said I said I said you don't know what it's like to be doing this with Mike Nichols. Oh and he said, you don't know what it's like to be Mike Nichols. <laughs> and that's like singing please please me with the Beatles. I know, it is, it is. That's and I'm like, cool, as I'm telling though. you the story, it's like the hairs on my neck are standing up. And my husband and my my stepdaughter happened to be visiting me on the set with some house up in the Antelope Valley. And I just ran to tell them what happened because it was just unbelievable. It was this, this early, early um, little germ of an idea that I had when I was listening to that album that, that I entered that world of comedy, Surreal. and here I was working. He with had Mike to be Nichols. flattered by that, though. Surreal. That's pretty. That, uh, oh, I, I, I'm pretty sure he was. So, how was he to work with as an actor? Um, he was, he was 
good, but I, I tell you, he was he was good until I couldn't give him what he wanted. And then it felt really bad. <laughs> there was one scene where I just it just wasn't it wasn't working and that that didn't feel good. And he wasn't um, I think he had like we had done it several times and he didn't want to continue with the scene and, and then the scene ended up not being in the movie. Mm. So of course I, I internalized everything about this. I think, Oh, I ruined the scene, blah, blah, blah. Who knows why they didn't put the scene in the movie, <laughs> but he kept asking me to do it again. And I don't know how, what you guys are like, but when you, when I keep getting asked to do the same thing over again, it's like when you ask a centipede, how it manages to walk with 100 feet and mm-hmm. then you become really self-conscious about right. it. So that's what happened to me. So maybe he just so, didn't, he didn't know how to give the specific note that would have gotten you there. Maybe he didn't. Yeah. You I know, mean, maybe he didn't, but, but I found working with him incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you on Charlie Wilson's war, which if you blink, you're going to miss me in it. I, um, was surprised at how he was treating the extras. Mm-hmm. It was um, it was it was kind of like when you meet your heroes and and sometimes they fall short. Mm-hmm. He was really strict and brusque with them. Yeah, and that that made me a little sad. I hope that's okay that I'm sharing this here. I mean, oh, I think no, I think I it's I think it. it's very real and very interesting and i i've certainly you know read books and watched documentaries about him so i'm familiar with his the the some of the bristles and he's very demanding yeah i mean he was very he was very demanding but you know and that's okay to discuss because it's part of what made him him so and he was so smart you you could tell he was a genius oh my god i I mean that's what i got out of the book and so it's it's like the rest of humanity can't live up to his expectations it would probably be so intimidating but i yeah but i i was thinking about the parallels of him being a perfectionist and then you yes working through that i was just thinking that too that's very interesting you know i brought that album to the comedy awards the year that he was being honored there Mm mm-hmm uh, and made my way over to his table. He was sitting there with Diane Sawyer, and I asked him to please autograph it, and he did. And she was just so delighted. Diane Sawyer, Sawyer was so delighted to to see the interaction between us. And it was, oh. I think she was a great uh, partner for him. Yeah, yeah. I think that was. I'm glad that I'm glad that he had found her. Yeah, I think those, she, I, I know that those were happy times in his life. Yeah, I think she got him. Okay, another another hero of mine you've worked with, and I, I suppose you worked with him for a bit in stand-up, Larry David. Oh, yeah. Actually, I did not work with him in stand-up. He was before me mm-hmm. in stand-up, but I, I remember hearing stories about how he would sabotage himself, oh, yeah. you know, as a stand-up. You know, he would, like, I remember one time the Letterman people came in to catch to catch Rising Star to, you know, to audition and... and uh, and he's having a set and he's not liking the way it's going and he starts badgering the audience. I saw him do that in the Westwood Comedy Store. He said, you people don't understand a thing I'm saying. He just walked off the stage right in the middle of a set. I mean, he was not, you know, he, he was not <laughs> destined to be. Like, no. He was better than he was better than most of the rooms, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels um, like, you know, he just writer. continues finding his voice and finding his footing yes. and what works for him. Yes, and and I think he found his milieu definitely. Yeah. But he's he's a sweet man, 
he does everything he can to give his compadres work. Um, and, and he was, he was so much fun to work with. Is the legend true about the amount of improvisation on Curb Your Enthusiasm? Oh yeah. He sets up the, 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 the beginning and the end and then you fill it in yourself. Yes. Oh, my daughter's cat is talking to me. Um, (laughs) yes. You just know the bones of the, you know, the bones of the scene. And you know where it starts, you know where it ends, and then you do a take, and then they go, "That's great." Okay, remember to leave this in. Let's leave that out, and remember to um, address this. And then you do it again, and then you kind of like build, you build it each each time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really really fun. The stuff that that's discovered. Oh wow! Yeah, that's- oh, I love I love doing it. But um, I did the, the last one I did um, was. Uh, I did. I actually, he let me play two different characters on the show. Um, I the first time I played myself, and the second time I played a woman in a restaurant at a table next to him. Oh. And um, we had such an interesting <laughs> argument going back and forth. It was really. Did you work really with Susie funny. Essman or Jeff Garland earlier in your career before Curb? Well, I worked with Susie. Yes, yeah, yeah, we used to take the crosstown bus together <laughs> uh, to to the comic strip and Catch Rising Star because we both lived on the Upper West Side. And then Jeff, I, I had, had met, you know, in comedy mm-hmm. clubs, mm-hmm. but we lived in different cities uh, for a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a Chicago person, but he came through New York and, and then we both ended up in LA together. Can you talk for a moment about women in writing rooms and what, what uh, were you able to bring to the experience that helped shape scripts? Because I imagine you were always a minority when you were in a room, right? Um, yes. And I haven't been, excuse me, I haven't been in that many rooms, Mm -hmm. really. I mean, I've only been in, in, well, maybe three writing rooms, but yes, always a minority, always a minority. Roseanne was uh, an enormous, enormous uh, writing staff. It was Mm -hmm. like, we began the season with 27 people. And there was no, there's no other sitcom I know that's had the writing staff. that big um and maybe it whittled it down they whittled it down to like 22 after some firings and um i was in the i was in one of the joke rooms that's how they they could have they had such so much comedy power they had like three joke rooms they had breakout rooms (laughs) yeah and we would each take five jokes and and do them and so in my joke room were it was basically all I'm, almost all the time I was with all the women. Mm, interesting. And Alan Stephen. Um, it was um, Carrie Snow, Lois Bromfield, Cynthia Mort, Monica and myself. Piper. Was Monica with the show? She was not not the. Did she write on Roseanne? I thought so, but maybe not. Maybe she did. I can't remember, but um, she might have. But she wasn't there the year I was there. Mm-hmm. Those were the four women that were there. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, in Garland, Garland Testa, who became very, um, very um, uh, successful with King of the Hill. Well, that's kind of cool for you because Carrie and you and uh, were, were friends. And so that's that's better than most. Yeah, Lois are. actually is the person who recommended me wow. because Roseanne wanted to hire more women. Oh. And I knew Roseanne from Roseanne and I both moved to L.A. in 1985 and we met on this uh special that we were taping at the comedy store for George Slaughter was called Funny. It was about various things that are funny. And 
the women of the comedy store. In fact, that's that's where Roseanne got her uh, Tonight Show was Maureen Murphy. Do you remember Maureen of Murphy? Course. I went to her funeral at the comedy store. She was she died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When? Yeah. Yeah. Years ago, five, six years ago. Oh, my ago. God. Yeah. Oh, that's I went that's to her sad. memorial service and then Mitzi's right afterwards. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Well, Maureen and was Carrie in Snow this... sort of oversaw her. Oh, no, that was uh, that was uh, Taylor Negron's memorial. Right. But, uh, you know, all those all those people, the, the ladies always stuck together and they all showed up. Yes. So Maureen was in this special that we were doing at the comedy store and this segment of that special. And she made note of Roseanne. I mean, Roseanne was hilarious. And she secretly told Jim McCauley to come to one of our rehearsals. And he sat in the back in the dark. And uh, then we took a break and a bunch of us went to the kitchen to get some beverages. And and he walked up to her in the main room and he said, I want you to, uh, to, to do the show. And she looks at him blankly. And he says, you don't know who I am. And he hands her a card and it says, Jim McCauley, The Tonight Show. And she screamed and ran down that hallway into the parking lot in the back. And we were like, like, what's the matter? What's the matter? And we ran out to the parking lot and she's jumping up and down. I'm doing The Tonight Show. I'm doing The Tonight Show. <laughs> and then Karen Haber and I went to see her do The Tonight Show, her her debut. We went, to, we sat mm-hmm. in the audience. And she, I, rem- I don't know if you remember this, but she was nervous. She went out there, she did her set, she killed, and then she spun on her heel and went right back through the curtain. <laughs> she did not want to be out there. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then she became a star. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah so that's... I didn't answer your question really much about the women in the room. We were a minority. <sighs> yeah, but it sounds like, you know, I don't know if that for you was the right outlet. Because it just like might be kind of stifling since you're a performer to have to you know wait. To it get was, a joke and, in. and that's kind. Of, yeah, that's why I left it because yeah. I didn't want to be a, a writer. I wanted to be a performer. Mm-hmm. I mean, writing is is an important part of my career, but I not to the. Uh, I didn't want it to eclipse my performing. Mm-hmm. And, and writing for stand up is a solitary, lonely, singular environment. And then you're writing in a room, and your, your stuff's being judged by other people. I always mm-hmm. thought that I would not survive well. Well, I have to say that it was there was a, there were a lot of laughs. I mean, there was a lot of laughter and also a lot of crying. Oh wow! Um, I remember one time I I didn't have I didn't have an office because my office was across the street. So I used to hang out in the offices, the main, like where everybody else had offices because there was such a big staff. They had to put some people across the street. Mm-hmm. And one time I was using somebody's office, my friend Drew who was on staff and um, I was crying to my husband on the phone and I was in there for the longest time and Drew's peering through the blinds trying to get <laughs> in there and he just sees me. <laughs> I know a lot of guy, guys and women Um, at about that time they got off the road because they wanted to have stability in their lives they wanted to have families I know Monica did the thing and and, and Jim Vallely and it turned out to be a great career for him people got Mm -hmm. off the road and then the bottom fell out of sitcoms for a while and these people are dusting off their acts and trying to go back on the road after that Mm -hmm. and it was not an easy journey no no it wasn't and you know I guess I just I, I kind of, I kind of, the road and I kind of got tired of each other. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I've been doing this for 40 years, close to 41 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I I didn't, I, the allure of, of staying home and being able to earn a living was, was something, but it wasn't really enough. It wasn't enough. Like I said, I just didn't want it to eclipse my performing. And then I, so I continued to go on the road and continue to act, but then the road kind of dried up for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, mm-hmm. it just, it, it just, uh, it, it's time for my next venue, basically. Really well, Weezy was talking about the difficulty in being a woman in a writer's room. But mm-hmm. I remember from my limited experience going on the road that it was really difficult for female comics on the road. Because you female comics were really in a minority and you go to the condo situation. It's three acts for seven days and two of them have really bad personal hygiene and one's a drug addict. And the right. other is a homosexual or whatever, whatever they probably quite seriously. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, different lifestyles. It was really hard for the female comics. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I kind of, I guess, I guess I didn't take it so much to heart. I mean, I, the worst situation I was ever in was a play. I was working in Ocean City, Maryland, and the condo had no lock on the door. Yikes. And um, the shower was one of those metal camp showers that you'd have at sleepaway camp, mm-hmm. but it didn't have a curtain. Ooh. It had an old bedroom door. Oh, Lord. That you'd have to put in front of the shower. <laughs> and one day I came out of my, uh, I woke up and I opened the door and I'm, I'm greeted by the ass of another comic stepping into the shower. Oh, stop. So, you know, yeah. I, I've, I've seen it. I've, I thought, I, I really don't want to deal with this, but I, I, dealt with it as, I dealt with it as best as I could. And it didn't destroy me. It didn't, I didn't, you know, it didn't, um, I didn't have to get the vapors from it. It was, <laughs> it was fine, but it wasn't, you know, it was certainly not the way I wanted to live. And I, I remember uh, going to play the um the uh what was it in sacramento laughs unlimited mm-hmm. they had a house instead of a condo but it was you know essentially the same thing and they had these beds that were coated in like plastic mm-hmm. like the mattress had plastic coating so then when you moved on it it kind of crackled me. and and my friend dave anderson who's no longer with us i'm i'm sorry i miss him uh a lot and he um he and i would do these commercials together and we'd say the crackle bed and we'd take <laughs> newspaper and we crackle and crunch the newspaper and we'd show the virtues of the crackle bed <laughs> so i mean we had fun making fun of it but at some point yes that stuff has to end i mean you know when you get to a certain stage of life you don't want to have to deal with that yes yeah. So where where should people go to enjoy what it is that you do? Um, I know that you've got your your one woman show coming, but where else can people uh, kind of partake of what you're you're what offering? I do? Yeah, what you do. Well, I mean, there's social media. You can go to Facebook. I mean, everything is Kathy Ladman. Mm-hmm. Every place you go is Kathy Ladman, except for Instagram. It's Kathy Ladman one. One. As because opposed I made a to two, the first time, and we hate I mean, her. <laughs> I didn't know how to. Del- we hate her. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know how to delete the, the mistake I made the first time because I forgot my password, so I had to just create Kathy Ladman one. Oh. So that's basically that. I mean, I'm in town sometimes at the Improv. Um, 
Um, where else can I tell people to see me? Let me ask you this. I, uh, yes. So you're you're going to do you're going to launch at the Pico Theater in June. Yes. And Pico so what, what, right. what are your aspirations for this? Are you going to have backers come and look at it? Are you going to grow it? Maybe do a longer residency somewhere, and then do what Monica did, which was to take her show to off Broadway. Um. Yeah. I think. I think what I want to do. I'm not. I, I don't think I'm going to. The plan is not to invite backers. Um, I mean, it could change in the next two months, but really what I want, what we want to do, my co-author and director and I want to do is we want to see how it looks on its feet. We want to see what works. We want to see what doesn't. And my goals for the show are, I'd like to take it to theaters around the country. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to actually also use it as an educational tool and perform it at colleges, maybe high schools. I don't know if it's, appropriate for high school age i think that would be a great target audience for eating disorders i'd say high school yes Yes. cruise ship no i say it again high school yes cruise ship no no cruise ship no no No, definitely not because no one has food issues on a cruise ship they do not and they have it but um, they don't recognize (laughs) um so yeah i'd like to do it at colleges and if if i could do it at high schools if if it could translate to high school students i would love to do it there because that's where they need it i'd also like to contact uh, organizations like the national eating disorders association and see if i can work in conjunction with them and um get it out to places where people can glean you know some some help and support right where it can be beneficial and and yeah i mean i want i wanted this to be entertaining but i really also want i'm doing this partly to be of service too because it's not um it's still supported in our media being Mm -hmm. being thin and especially for women is still um supported to the detriment of women yeah it's it's an ongoing issue especially of course as you know being the mother of a teenage daughter with social media and the you know there's apps that can stretch you and make you thinner and like i even know of girls that have um, pinched other girls to make them look fatter in photos that they post and stuff so there's all kinds of shaming that still goes on around body image and it's, it's just an ongoing struggle it's part of being a human and you know, and what you're doing is just such a gift to young women. About I ten hope years so. ago, and boys too. About ten yes. years ago, there seemed to be a period of time when the fashion industry was becoming very aware of that, and the plus size models started to come into mm-hmm. vogue, and more realistic body shapes came into vogue. But now we've gotten away from that, and I mean, supermodels look painfully thin. There's a commercial that runs in the Lamely theaters about. Um, uh, one of the leather companies or something where the woman's dressed in all black leather. And I'm telling you, it's preoccupying how thin this woman is. And, and and it doesn't do the, the product any good because you're not even right. thinking about the purse. You're looking at right. this rail thin lady. You just right. want to get mean, her a sandwich. I mean, I can see, you know, my, I can see how my perspective has changed because now I can walk down the street and I can look at someone and say that person's in trouble. Yeah. Right. Not to right. not say that person looks great. Right. But I, I do see companies. Um, there's a clothing company called Cabby that has plus size models. Athleta uses a lot of plus size models mm-hmm. in their catalogs. So I still see it. Um, and maybe not enough. 
Yeah, uh, it doesn't no, have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be plus size or minus size. Just a, a normal right. looking person. A with normal looking maybe person, a little yes. pooch that doesn't bother anybody. I I right. love that on on shows like American Idol. It, it doesn't even matter anymore the size of the person coming out because at the at the beginning, you know, Simon Cowell would say something like, you know, do you think you look like the American Idol? And you know, if the person was like either kind of awkward looking or whatever, they might be like. uh in, but now people come on American Idol, all different sizes, and you uh-huh. and you just kind of think, oh well, let's see how they sing, and right. yeah, and we have more superstars in music. Maybe we always did in music, you know. Maybe we always had different size people in, in music that you know, if they're captivating, then they're captivating, and they just right. kind of like jump off the stage and grab you, and it right. should, it shouldn't matter what size anybody is, you know. No, it shouldn't. Yeah, but we still. I mean, you know, the amount of plastic surgery that is done in our in our business mm-hmm. and the amount of ageism that's oh, yeah. uh out there and and also you know body shaming i mean it's still it still happens it still happens and and you know you still hear you hear it with, with in about with ballerinas i mean oh god they man. are still you know there's so much bulimia it seems like no matter how much we become aware of how harmful things are like Boys, the go-to thing is to call somebody, to question somebody's sexuality or to call somebody gay and women to call them either a slut or a whore or Mm -hmm. something about their, the shape of their body. And like, as much as we've evolved to know better, those still seem to be like the middle school things to do that could cause the most pain because that's the goal at that age, right? If someone hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Dina, our producer would like to weigh in here. Yes. Hi, Kathy. Is this thing on? <laughs> Hi, Kathy. I just had a question Hi. for you. Hi. Yes. It's an honor to speak with you. I've been a fan since I was like 11 years old. Aww. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, That's I just, fantastic. I just have a quick question to uh, kind of weigh in, no pun intended, on the conversation. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if you ever talk about normalizing, uh, like not complimenting how people, um, not necessarily someone's appearance but normalizing not saying oh you look great you look like you lost a bunch of weight like that aspect of like those kind of compliments and how they could be like triggering for example Mm -hmm. to someone that struggled um you know has had food issues throughout their life like is that something that you ever talk or think about or do you have like an opinion on that well i i caught myself doing that i mean i catch myself doing that sometimes saying to somebody did you lose weight? You look great. And, and even, even somebody who's lived on my side of the street for a long time. And that's, um, it's a, it's a social, um, uh, pitfall. I think, I, I think it's a societal, uh, there's kind of like an ideal that's still in our society now that you want to look a certain way. And it's, and it's, I don't think it's like that in, in other countries. I don't think it's like that in all other countries and mm-hmm. some other countries. I mean, I think that eating disorders are kind of like Asia, I think is, is, uh, is um, getting more of a preponderance of eating disorders. But I do think that that's, a t- I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think that that is a something that, I find that I need to keep hyper vigilant about not 
giving a positive reinforcement to losing right. weight. It's something that we all kind of have to work on because it's like you're saying it's ingrained mm-hmm. in us to yes. to make comments on like the size and shape of people's bodies. Yes. And it's like we have to work to get away from that. Yeah, it's, I think it's know, like we live in a land of abundance. And if you listen to the lyrics of If I Were a Rich Man, he's saying, if I were rich, my wife would have a proper double chin. That right. means I can feed my family. And right. the, that's I mean, a good thing. That used to be that used to be the the sign of a wealthy family was mm-hmm. somebody who had some girth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I, I do think that our our society is very used to thin equals good, bigger equals bad, and and, and it's something that it. I think we need to change on a on on a very on an individual level. I think we each need to be more vigilant about. Yeah, it. or even just saying, you know, you look you look young. You look good. You look, you look healthy. Yeah, but like we also when you know we say the people look young or they look thin, oh, and yes. those are all all things that you know you can't do anything about the age you are. You are the age I you know. are. It's like you could say you look rested and you look good. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> like people will say to me that I don't look my age, and I. I mean, like, why is it bad for me to look my age? Right, exactly. There's a lot of compliments that, like, actually are not compliments. <laughs> right. It's an interesting Like, way tell to me more. It. What are some other ones? <laughs> <laughs> we think you're brilliant and, and lovely. And and um, we need to wrap up our show. Oh, and, I know. I'm and sorry. And it's, it's just been wonderful I chatting with you. Like it's my fault. No, no, no. <laughs> you are our honored guest. But Fritz is going to now tell folks how they can help us and help all of all of America by reviewing our podcast. So others well, can- I just let me say, you know that I've been a fan of yours for a long time. You're so smart. And I just know that uh, jokes or not, your, your, your one-person show is going to be thoughtful and articulate. Thank and, you, And I, I, hope, I, I hope you have great success with it. And I hope Thank you get to work so again much. soon and together. I- and I really hope I didn't say anything stupid on here today. I you were, really, really, you were really, very really thoughtful do. and awesome. <laughs> you, you were really, <laughs> uh, but uh, for folks who would like to uh, learn about other content, maybe not quite as brilliant as Kathy, but damn close, go to our website, mediapathpodcast.com. We've got 86, 87 episodes in there, and we run the gamut of topics from the uh, medical issues of Elvis Presley to uh, a singer who works with the Oak Ridge Boys to uh, wonderful people who were part of our lives early in sitcoms in the United States. You'll find something on there you love. And if you do love something, or even if you don't, we would ask you to fake a positive reaction to one of the podcasts and and send us a review because it'll help us spread the word so people know that we have quality guests like Kathy Ladman on here. Yeah, it's guys are great. And then next time I'm on, if I do come on again, I want to come in in person. Would you please? Well, yes. we, we can book that well, one. When you get the show up and running, bring it on and let's 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 talk about it when you're promoted for the next level of exposure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a great little set you have there and and you guys are terrific together. I really love this. Thank you. Oh, you're thank so you welcome. so much. We'll we'll book you and have you In fact, if you get in your car now, you could come over before the credits roll <laughs> and we'll take some pictures on the back deck. I don't think so. It's four, it's after 4. Oh, yeah, exactly. Traffic <laughs> LA. Okay, so here come the credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter where we are at @mediapathpod and on Facebook where our show page is Media Path Podcast and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Weezy podcast community. 
You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying, so you can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our insightful, brilliant, and lovely guest, Kathy Ladman. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman and Kathy Ladman, and we will see you along the media path. Okay, hold your place for one moment, Kathy, because we're going to stand up next to you, next to the monitor on which we see your face and take a picture. Oh, okay.